Happy Friday, folks. Senior Editor Mackenzie Taylor here on the Texans Weekly Roundup Podcast. This week, the team discusses the conservative trend in last weekend's school board races, the results of the over 200 bond proposals on ballots, a San Antonio school official pressuring employees to vote for a bond, Governor Abbott inching closer to support for school vouchers, developments in Texas's social media censorship law, the Attorney General joining support for an out-of-state law outlawing child gender transition, Alan West re-entering the political fray, Austin's light rail project drastically increasing in cost, Dallas police indictments, and Austin voters approving a new ordinance dealing with marijuana. Plus, we announce new team members and plot some friendly office initiation. If you have questions for our team, DM us on Twitter or email us at editor at thetexan.news. We'd love to answer your questions on a future podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Howdy, folks. Mackenzie Taylor here with Brad Johnson, Isaiah Mitchell, Daniel Friend, and Hayden Sparks. Y'all are sitting in a different order this this week, and it, it almost messed me up. I almost just went in my old order. Mm. But now I don't even remember what I didn't it was. even know you had an order. Well, y'all always sit in the same seat, and so she, just by she, definition. She always goes around the table. Yeah, sometimes she clockwise. starts one way, sometimes she starts the other way. Really? Yeah. I feel like I'm always clockwise. No. I think oh. I called you out for it once, oh. and then you did something different the next time. Wow. Well, Daniel rearranged the whole room for a, a slow fuse pun, and my brain's never recovered. So I frankly don't remember how he said. Oh. Well, it wasn't just for before. a pun that I did that. It wasn't? No. It's like I, I rearranged the room so that I could use the room. Ah. Uh, because better. I was making a video that I'm going to be sharing in a week and a half. Woo! What's the Twitter account again? It's called? The Testimony of Cal. Oh. I think. Everyone go follow. You think? Yeah, because <laughs> after how many words you've written, you should probably have that down. No, see, I've made a bunch of different social media accounts, and like on Facebook and Instagram, you can have longer handles, so I was uh, able to fit the entire title yeah. in there. When I went to Twitter, it was had to be shorter, so it's it's not the full length of the title of the book. Okay, yeah, there you that go. makes more sense. <clears throat> hmm. Well, keep an eye out for it, folks. Video coming soon. Um, wonderful. Gentlemen, I do want to make note here. Um, Isaiah was uh, earlier this week opining about, because usually Isaiah's a very low maintenance coffee drinker. We have a big thing of Folgers. He's the one in the office who will usually make a pot of coffee. Do you drink the whole pot of coffee yourself? Yeah. <laughs> I do it at odd times too. It's like like last night the p- coffee grinder came in. It was four fifty five p.m. and he was like, oh, "I gotta make a coffee. I gotta make a pot." Like you're you're technically able to leave in five minutes and go home. And also, I mean, I drink coffee late. So what am I talking about? I've mm. I've, I've brewed coffee very late before. How did you sleep last night? Pretty well. Hmm. It doesn't affect you if you like. How late do you have to drink coffee in order for it to affect you? I don't know. Um, I guess I don't feel its effects that strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It'll make you jittery. Okay. If I, get, if I drink a whole lot of it, but that's about it. But so. if you like a cup at five, you're fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Or a pot at five. <laughs> I guess you probably didn't drink the entire pot. It wasn't that big, but I mean, it wasn't like to the brim. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Interesting. That would make it sound like I just take it out of the, and just chug the... I mean, it would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past you. Grave. Uh, however you say it. I've never heard that Cra- word spoken. Graph. Oh, okay. Yeah. Apples, oranges. Can you taste a difference between like the coffee you just brewed uh, and Folgers? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which do you prefer? 
I think I, I, I like this one better, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's from Sons in Fort Worth. It's pretty good stuff. And Daniel's just not a coffee drinker. Hayden likes to hug his coffee. We just talked about that. Hayden will hug his coffee mug to his chest and enjoy his time. And he has no mic in front of him, so he's unable <laughs> to say anything about this. And Brad orders... Um, as usual. As you... <sighs> My <laughs> usual, yes. I can, they name it the bread on the menu. I thought yeah. I went yeah. fast yeah. enough where I could get my word. It's wearing my words in before anybody else and set the narrative as a truthful one. And Daniel still managed <laughs> to get his his word his words in. I don't know what you're talking about. The nice lady at Sweetwaters. <laughs> asked Does she me know your if name? If I want my usual. Does she know your name? No. Oh, she. Knows well, she that. knows when I put my phone number in and then it pops up on her thing. <laughs> but she does know recognize me for uh, what I usually get or always get. So, but she does know my name. Mm. Does she know? Oh, yes, she does. That you want X drink? What is what? What is the drink I order, Brad? It's a latte. What is it? You literally can't get around this. I always order an oat milk vanilla latte and I it's my usual. I've gotten it for years. Brad, mm-hmm. I, well, he was like, what are you getting one day? And I was like, I'm getting an oat milk vanilla latte. And he's like, okay, well, get me one. And so I did. <clears throat> and now he claims that it's his usual and it drives, and it is now, it but it drives nuts, me I, crazy. I yeah. But I've been drinking lattes bef- well before I started. But it's not just show. a latte. It's an oat milk vanilla latte. Oh my gosh. All right. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> the fact that it has vanilla in it is why I get it. I don't give a crap about the oat milk. Oh, well then why, why, why would you not? But it's more expensive. You know, I'm, I must point out, Right before we began this podcast, Mac told us, let's keep our segments pithy and tight. <laughs> we're like and five minutes in talking this. about coffee. <laughs> Called it, out. It had been a few weeks until we, or since we bickered on the podcast, so I think we had to get that in. That's true. It was We had to get it out of People our systems. People come for the bickering. That's why they're here. <laughs> like, yeah, two of our listeners come for the bickering. The rest actually come for the news, but some people do enjoy it, which I cannot understand. Well, on that note, Isaiah, we are going to go ahead and jump in the news. Thank you for calling me out in my hypocrisy. Um, a lot of so let's talk about the elections this last weekend. A lot of eyes were watching Texas school board races specifically. Politically, how did they turn out? Um, it's always a little hard to define a statewide trend in school board races because we've got around a thousand of them in Texas. Sheesh. And they've got their own election rules. They don't all have elections on the same day. And so the system is just real decentralized and just vast. But there was definitely an undeniable pattern among a lot of high-profile school districts where candidates that focused a lot on fiscal thrift, transparency, and less political academics did a lot better than candidates who focused on what you might call the usual classics among that sphere, like diversity measures, funding hikes, and either like getting rid of accountability measures like standardized tests altogether Mm. or unlinking them from the way we would gauge the performance of teachers or schools. Would that be like in, in today? And I'm asking this, like, is that what you would consider like the classic tenets of school board races now, even more so than the things that people who ran their races on and won this cycle might typically espouse? Yes. And the reason why is that those latter interests that I mentioned um, are typically the concerns of teacher and school board unions. So got it. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And so we can generally, so we don't have to go over these same topics every time we talk about the candidates. We can just colloquially call these conservatives and um, more establishment candidates, if you want to put it that way, mm-hmm. since they generally do share the concerns of TASB and the AFT and the NEA and so forth. Yeah. So, the establishments of the Texas public education system, basically. That's a good like way to put it. For the most part. Yeah. yeah I mean, 
Okay, thank you. I just wasn't quite sure. Um, so talk about the pattern. Where do we see this? What what did, what all did we see in terms of which school districts came out in this kind of um, result? Uh, some people have written on the fact that there was a lot of heightened fundraising for this particular cycle for particular places. And um, there were certainly... There's certainly like bigger and more prominent attention devoted to particular districts. Like Brad wrote an article talking about how there are a lot of Republicans from state or federal offices that were paying attention to school boards in their districts that they represent. Like Chip Roy kind of waded into that topic. Uh, Gary Gates, we'll get into him. Uh, GOP, Texas GOP Chairman Matt Rinaldi endorsed three candidates in the spring branch ISD board elections. All three of them won. The state GOP also endorsed Scott Bowen, uh, an incumbent trustee and self-described conservative on the Clear Creek ISD school board who also won his race in Grayvon Colleyville ISD. Um, similar deal, these two candidates who both campaigned on the goal of depoliticizing the classroom picked up both school board seats on the ballot, had a lot of support from Rinaldi and other people in the same crowd. Yeah. Uh, State Rep. Gary Gates endorsed a couple candidates on the Forbind ISD board. This is really notable. Uh, one of them, they both won. Uh, and they were the only two races on the ballot. One of those races uh, that the the challenger won, he ousted the incumbent trustee, Jim Rice, who also heads the Texas Association of School Boards. So a bit of a symbolic victory there. Yeah. Um, and Richardson ISD, uh, incumbent trustee Aaron Lynn, again, another, I say symbolic as regards to like, it really symbolizes particular topics that are at play here. Uh, this particular trustee is a staunch opponent of vouchers and school choice. He actually took last place in a three-way race for his seat. And uh, so there's a runoff. That district does have runoffs. Again, they all got different rules. Not all of them do. So a lot of these races that I've already, even the ones that I've already mentioned, um, we've got winners with like 46, 47% because, you know, it's just whoever gets the most votes wins in some places. And other places do have that 50% cutoff rule that can lead to a runoff. There was a group uh, called the Lake Travis Families Pack advocating transparency and parental involvement in that district. All three candidates that they endorsed won their races for the Lake Travis ISD School Board. Uh, Chip Roy, whom we mentioned earlier, uh, the candidates that he endorsed were for the two seats on the ballot in Dripping Springs ISD. Both won their elections. And obviously, uh, critical race theory was a big topic in this race. It has been, um, I mean, since the it has been in Texas at least since the legislature addressed it and before that because it motivated the legislature to address it right yeah and um so we've there's a, a longer definition to that in the article that I, I hope will suffice but um however you want to define it uh there were candidates who were outspoken opponents of critical race theory that did very well in their yeah. races um one of them is Marvin Lowe a realtor and an outspoken opponent of critical race theory. I say outspoken because it's pretty explicit on his website. He defeated an incumbent trustee, Natalie Hebert, endorsed by the Dallas Morning News for a place on the Frisco ISD board. And there was another candidate uh, for the same board, Stephanie Elad, uh, also with a platform explicitly opposing critical race theory, who won her spot, place three. There's a group called the 1776 Project Pack um, with the same concerns, especially with regard to CRT, but also with a lot of other topics like school choice and so forth. Um, they endorsed a raft of candidates, all of all but one of whom won their races. And uh, the candidates that they endorsed were running in Keller ISD uh, and Mansfield ISD, South Lake Carroll ISD, um, a district that is weathered particularly tumultuous controversy over its own diversity measures. Uh, it's gotten a lot of national attention for it, especially thanks to NBC and some others. Yeah. But um, candidates who oppose that diversity plan uh, are still maintaining their gains on the school board. So, um, those are just just a few. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard, like you said, to distill all these races down to one trend. But I think the the really the thread you're pointing out here is where Republicans you know, higher elected Republicans did get involved and cited these concerns. These candidates did win largely. That's kind right. of what we saw. Mm-hmm. So, you, like you said, many, many candidates, hundreds of ISDs. It's hard to really distill it down. But in terms of uh, the trends we saw where elected Republicans did get involved in races and cited these concerns, parents and constituents responded. And they might have had a substantial effect. Uh, we saw, I was watching the Dripping Springs race and Chip Roy's two candidates uh, were behind after early voting and they were behind it while the, the numbers were low, the percentage differences were pretty substantial. But then once the election day results rolled in, they pulled ahead. So interesting. Um, I think Roy announced his endorsement uh, like a week and a half before the election. So, um, so kind of ramped up over early voting. Yeah. You got to assume. It right, was also yeah. really interesting that in that race in particular, I saw the numbers on that and the breakdown between absentee voting versus in-person early voting. The absentee definitely favored the two candidates that he had not endorsed, whereas the in-person definitely favored okay. uh, the ones that he did. So there was an interesting difference there, too. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Isaiah, for boiling that that down for us. Brad, let's pivot to bonds here. Um, that was the other you know, really big portion of the local elections that happened on Saturday. And for those who have not checked out, go to um, the Texan.News and check out our election tracker for a lot of notable races in the state. Um, but let's talk about the over 200 local government bond proposals that were on the ballots across Texas. What are some notable results. So the six most expensive propositions, including 40 ISDs, $1.3 billion proposition passed largely with comfortable margins. These things usually pass. Bonds, and so yeah. um, that's not surprising. Um, but basically, when you go into these elections, you expect them to pass because they're school bonds and people love voting for things that increase funding for their schools, for their children. Yeah. Historically. Yeah. Historically. Yeah. yeah. So the the first six were all chalk and then the next three most expensive school bonds though all failed um, those were sheldon little elm and granberry isds um, all substantial uh, expenditures now of the 16 pr- propositions itemized for athletic stadiums some of them were to build a new stadium some of them were to renovate existing stadiums for expansion and whatnot only four passed and they were all at um, relatively small population school districts. Uh, another notable one that I've written on before was the Cameron County arena levy that failed by 55 votes last November. And the commissioners put it back up for a vote this May and it failed by a larger margin, 209 votes. So um, while most of these things pass and we won't know until the, the breakdown um, on the pass fail rate to these and the amount of debt actually approved until the, the bond review board puts out all their yeah. their tallies, they keep track of it. Um, that'll probably come out next week. But uh, some notable ones went down and uh, kind of a, a continued trend from what I'd say I mentioned uh, in November uh, last year. Um, the It was the first time in 10 years that more school bonds were rejected than passed. So uh, maybe this trend is kind of starting to turn a little bit, but um, 
you know, we'll see. And we'll see once the bond review board puts the results out. And Cameron County specifically being a very interesting instance of this of this happening. Brad, thank you for covering that for us. Um, Isaiah, let's uh, speaking of bonds, we saw a little controversy at a San Antonio school district over its bond election this week. What happened? Well, um, there's a school choice activist named Cordy Angelus who got this scoop on a particular story in Northside ISD in San Antonio. Uh, he obtained district communications from a principal of a school in the district, uh, unnamed in the screenshots that he shared. But in the message, the principal explicitly asks employees to vote for the bond that just respond on the ballot and says the district will monitor whether or not employees vote. And uh, we'll soon get to why you oofed at that, because uh, the law has something to say about it. <laughs> but um, there is... Just so that the, um, we can get the interpretations out of the way. The message says word for word, thank you for supporting the NISD bond 2022. As per Dr. Woods, all employees will be expected to vote for this year's bond. So now the message continues um, asking students, excuse me, employees to get out and vote. And so the bulk of the message is devoted to encouraging voting on its own, yeah. you know, in, in a nonpartisan way. Well, in this case, it's partisan is not part of it in a way that doesn't affect support or opposition to this particular measure. You know, so he says uh, that we will expect all employees to vote and um, it's unacceptable that only 7% of employees voted for the last bond and, and so forth. However, it also says central office will be monitoring campus percentages for employee voting stats in the next week to come and we'll be expecting all employees to vote. So they are keeping an eye on the voting activity of their employees in the district. Yeah. Absolutely. So what could be the legal consequences of pressuring employees to vote for this bond? Well, as you oofed, uh, the election code <laughs> in Texas says that it is um, and public employees cannot spend or authorize public funds on political advertising. And the definition of political advertising includes a communication supporting or opposing a measure. And um, my pause there was an ellipsis that includes like some other things you could support or oppose, like candidates, for example, that's the most obvious one. But a measure, like a bond, is also explicitly included in the Texas Election Code as uh, a political action that is forbidden to spend money, public money, to support or oppose yeah. in messaging. So there's that. And it, so the Election Code says that this is a, a misdemeanor crime. So Governor Greg Abbott actually weighed in on social media and said, uh, I have spoken with Texas Education Commissioner Mike Marath about this. He confirms that if these posts are verified, then it is likely a crime. And uh, he then promised that Marath with the TEA and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton would both investigate. Wow. Well, thanks for covering that for us. We'll keep an eye. I know that um, the activist you talked about, Corey DeAngelis, did put out a, a website for specifically Texas public school employees to report corruption. I think it's like corruptiononline.com or something. So we'll be interesting to see if more instances are reported by you know his group. Thank you for following that for us. Brad, while Governor Abbott has previously made comments in support of school choice in some fashion, specifically talking about the 88th legislative session um, to come in 2023. This week, he came out um, more clear than ever on what particularly he would support. What did he say? So at a campaign event in San Antonio, Abbott told a crowd of supporters, empowering the parent means giving them the ability to send their child to any public charter or private school with state funding following the student. Mm -hmm. um, that's about as explicit about a voucher-like program that he of a statement that he has made since the earlier days of his governorship. He's he's talked about it before, but recently this has not really 
been an issue that factors into the governor's rhetoric um, until earlier this year when he said in January that he expects a larger push for school choice during this coming legislative session than ever before. So there's that. Um, He did uh, say on a radio show with uh, Chris Salcedo earlier this week that um, he supports this for those three options, public charter, private, or any other alternative form of, of schooling. So he mm-hmm. hasn't, there were questions after he said this about homeschool. Yeah. Um, and he hasn't explicitly said that, but he did say any other form. So um, likely that extends to homeschooling as well. So the governor hasn't said homeschooling. He hasn't said vouchers. He hasn't specifically said what these, you know, potential reforms could be or what right. support could be, but the inferences have been made and we'll see basically what he what he comes forward with later on and how yep. ardent he is, especially once the legislature is in session. What were the, re- the reactions to this? So conservative activists, organizations and officials all came out applauding the governor for the statement. Dan Patrick put out a statement the next morning, lauding it, lauding the comments and reiterating his own support for the issue. Um, basically the um, across the board among conservatives and conservative elected officials, they all were, very much in support. Um, now Abbott's opponent, Beto O'Rourke has since keyed in on this issue, uh, as one separated two candidates. He said shortly after Abbott's comments on Tuesday, Monday night, it was, he said, Abbott is for defunding our public schools. I'm for fully funding our kids' classrooms and fully supporting parents, teachers, and students. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see, particularly once the primaries are over and this runoff is done, how, um, how much more we hear about this yeah, issue. How until, much staying power does it have? Yes, absolutely. So what is the environment like in the legislature on this issue for next session, speaking of which? Yeah, so unlike the abortion issue, which almost exclusively does fall along party lines, this does not. Um, Republicans and Democrats are generally divided on the issue, though to varying degrees. Um, with Patrick's support for the issue, he's likely to marshal votes for it in the Senate as he has done with other, um, you know, more social conservative type issues. Um, he controls the Senate with an iron fist, whereas the house is more up to the members, what they do. Uh, the speaker is less controlling than, than the Lieutenant governor is of his chamber. So that means the house is where its future is more spotty. Um, in a radio interview a couple weeks ago, Speaker Dade Phelan said that a test vote on vouchers was held during the 2021 budget debates uh, as an amendment, and it only received between 40 and 45 members in support. So that's a long way to go to get from there to passing level in the 150 member legislature or men, member body. So, but if the governor pushes the envelope on this, you can expect that number to grow. Um, but who knows if that'll be enough. There are a lot of especially rural Republicans, um, or at least I wouldn't say a lot, but a sizable number of rural Republicans that are not in support of this. Yeah. And either they've been out there openly against this, like Representative Glenn Rogers, or they've been silent on the issue. So um, we don't know how it's going to turn out. Um, the, what is it, 83 currently Republicans roughly in the House? Yeah, I Maybe think it's so. To, I think it might be up to 85 now. Um so, but you know, the Republican Party is not united on this issue, and so uh, we'll see if they can next session get to the margin they need to pass this thing in whatever form they put up. Yeah, this thing being the uh, 
the big question. Yeah. And we don't know what it'll be. Um, it might be a voucher program. I heard Van Skin uh, at the Texas Public Policy Foundation suggested something like an education savings account, similar to what they do with healthcare. Yep. But in practicality, we're talking about vouchers here. Yeah. Um, in some way, shape, or form, the money following the students. And That's kind of the final form of school yes. choice. There are variations. There are pro-school choice uh, pieces of legislation or just policies that can be put forward that are uh, fall within that category. But vouchers are kind of the, the full form there, the taxpayer money following the student, just like you were talking about. Yep. Very good stuff. Thank you, Bradley. Daniel, the Fifth Circuit uh, just weighed in on a bill passed by the legislature last year targeting social media censorship. What did they say? So this appeal was uh, brought to the Fifth Circuit by Attorney General Ken Paxton after, uh, in a lawsuit in December, a lower court actually issued an injunction preventing uh, Texas' new anti-social media censorship bill uh, from going into effect. Uh, so the Fifth Circuit, they didn't really give any opinion on this, but they did issue an order in a two-to-one decision uh, saying that the law can go into effect. They basically put a stay on a stay. <laughs> um, so essentially they're saying that the, the law can uh, go into effect while the case continues at the lower court. Uh, so there is still uh, the trial being decided uh, in the, the trial court of whether or not this law is constitutional. Got it. Um, so what were the reactions of these parties involved? So the two big parties involved would be Attorney General Ken Paxton on the one hand, and also on the other hand, you have Net Choice, which is an organization that lobbies for big tech organizations uh, like Facebook and Twitter um, and different social media companies like that. Uh, so on the one hand, you had Paxton who praised the order. Naturally, he said, uh, quote, my office just secured another big win against big tech. HB 20 is back in effect. The Fifth Circuit made the right call here, and I look forward to continuing to defend the constitutionality of HB 20. Also, Governor Greg Abbott, who had pushed uh, this legislation during the legislative session last year, uh, called it a big win for free speech in Texas. Uh, now, on the other hand, Net Choice, obviously uh, in opposition to HB 20, uh, kind of condemned this order. They called it unprecedented. Um, Carl Sabo, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he's the vice president and general counsel of Net Choice, uh, said in a statement, quote, in an unusual and unfortunate move, a split two to one Fifth Circuit panel lifted the injunction without ruling on the merits and without issuing an opinion on explaining the order. Uh, he said, because HB 20 is constitutionally rotten through and through, we are weighing our options and plan to appeal the order immediately. What are next steps? So, uh, like the Vice President General Counsel of Net Choice said, uh, they are planning on appealing this to the Supreme Court. Uh, so we can expect this case to go up to them pretty quickly. Uh, now, whether the Supreme Court acts on it quickly or not, that's another matter altogether. And uh, in the meantime, the case is also going back down to the lower court uh, where they will continue ruling on the or weighing the decision about whether or not it's constitutional. Uh, on that, you have, on the one hand, uh, the, the attorney general in the state of Texas basically arguing that this is a bill that protects the free speech of individuals, whereas on the other hand, the people who are attacking this law say that it's a violation of free speech on the companies. So the First Amendment is at uh, the debate, at the center of the debate here. Very good. Thank you, Daniel. Isaiah, coming back to you, Attorney General Ken Paxton has joined a lot of lawsuits in other states and even has sued other states, but I digress. Um, this week, he announced a pretty notable um, lawsuit earlier this week in Alabama. What's the case about? So the case is a constitutional challenge to a state law that took effect in Alabama just this week that outlaws child gender transition. It is reportedly the first law of its kind to take effect anywhere in the U.S., 
Uh, I heard that Arkansas passed a similar law that wasn't joined, but I heard that from an article that said Texas passed a law that wasn't joined, which did not happen. So uh, I, I didn't look too deeply into Arkansas's legislation. Um, I did uh, do a deep dive into this one. We can get into that later. But um, it's reportedly the first law that's kind of take effect anywhere in the U.S. Paxton joined a lot of other state attorneys general in an amicus brief in support of the law in this case. And among other arguments, uh, which is interesting, the brief compares the current medical trend in support of what they would call, what they would term gender affirming care to the opioid academic. And um, so I'll try and find uh, some of their quotes here. But um, yeah, I'll just read from it. He says, we've been here before. Not many years ago, pain management was advocated as a fundamental human right. With some physicians dismissing as opioid phobic, other physicians concerned that raising pain treatment to a patient's rights issue could lead to over-reliance on opioids. Experts created new consensus-based standards and assured doctors that prescribing more opioids was largely risk-free. And so that's a quote from the brief. Continuing, it says, the U.S. the U.S. opioid epidemic, with its continuing fallout for millions of shattered lives, was the tragic result. And then it goes on to cite several academic studies that find no net benefit in medical transition for kids. Got it. Now, state lawmakers in Texas have proposed similar legislation, particularly last year. It was a very hot topic. How is Alabama's law different? Um, so there were different proposals in Texas. But the one that got the farthest was a bill by state rep Matt Krause that would have directed the Texas Medical Board to strip licenses from doctors that perform these procedures. And when I say these procedures, I mean administering or prescribing puberty blockers or opposite sex hormones, removing healthy body tissue, such as mastectomies, or surgically removing or constructing new genitalia, and all these for the purposes of aiding a gender transition and not addressing um, a, a, verifiably, a medically verifiable sex disorder in children. That's, there's an exception for that in Texas legislation that was proposed, and the same exception exists in the Alabama law that's effective now. Alabama's law, however, doesn't uses a far more direct mode of enforcement. It just makes it a felony to perform these procedures. So the TMB uh, would be the enforcement arm here in Texas uh, in the bill that didn't get passed, and in Alabama, it's, it's just um, a new crime. It also says, interestingly, that public school employees may not withhold information about a child's perception of his or her sex from the child's parent, and uh, they can't. They also can't coerce or encourage the child to withhold that information from the parent. Uh, that's something that was absent from, I want to say, any of the proposals in the Texas legislature yeah. from last year. Uh, but that section in the Alabama law does not describe a penalty. So um, I'm not quite sure about that one. It might be district wide. I don't know. But um, that's, a, that's an interesting line that, that didn't appear in any of the Texas bills. So. How has Paxton been involved in this issue up till now? So Krauss, if you'll recall was the lawmaker that submitted an official opinion request to Paxton. This was after the session, after the legislation failed in Texas, um, and after Greg Abbott directed the Texas Department of Family Protective Services to treat genital surgeries in particular as child abuse, saying that they were already considered child abuse under existing, unchanged Texas law. And the DFPS is the agency that you know controls foster care, investigates child abuse, that kind of thing. That's their gig. So after that, Matt Krause asked Paxton in an official request that, you know, giving Paxton a deadline, if the same might be said of puberty blockers, mastectomies, other procedures to aid a child gender transition, if those might also be considered abuse under Texas law. And um, ostensibly, uh, well, much of this is speculation, but Paxton took a little while. Yeah. And in that period, while he was taking a little while um, to digest and then eventually produce this opinion from his office, um, he kind of edged closer to 
there are some public facing gestures like you know the one that i've i've got the top of mind right now is when he sent um a bit of a confusing letter to dfps uh claiming insinuating that the agency already had the statutory authority without an official opinion from him to investigate and prosecute these procedures as child abuse under existing law and we've got an article about that that kind of unweaves um that request to the DFP yeah. or that letter to the DFPS, if you want to go back and look at that one. But uh, eventually Paxton did produce an opinion that said child abuse, as it's defined in Texas law, does include all of these procedures, um, especially those that sterilize the child in effect. Um, and that triggered the DFPS investigating and prosecuting these procedures, but they're currently blocked from doing that by a court order. Yeah. So. Well, thank you for unweaving that for us, Zay. Daniel, we're coming back to you. Um, Alan West was previously the Texas GOP chairman, and then he launched a campaign for governor against Governor Abbott. Um, now he's back in the news for something else. What is going on? There is a current board member of the National Rifle Association and several Ford, former board members of the group, uh, of which Alan West is also a former board member. Uh, but this group of individuals are have launched a draft campaign to nominate Alan West to be uh, the next head of the NRA. Um, I couldn't figure out why they, the head of the NRA is the executive vice president, not the vice, the just executive president, <laughs> but it's the executive vice president, head of the NRA, uh, that they want to nominate him for. Um, and that would be kind of a, a challenge to, uh, the current NRA head, uh, Wayne Lapeer. Uh, so that is something that he had been drafted to do. People were pushing for him to do. Uh, last week he said that he was praying about it and considering whether or not that was something that he wanted to do. And this week, uh, he came out with a statement saying that he would accept the nomination, um, and try and pursue that. He said, quote, as now known, several individuals came to me via email last week requesting I consider allowing them to nominate me for EVP of the NRA. I have humbly consented because the progressive socialist left seeks to eradicate our Second Amendment right. We haven't heard about the so progressive socialist left in a little while. Yeah. <laughs> it's been it's been like, what, uh, three months or something? Two months? Mm. Anyway, that's like his <laughs> coin phrase. <laughs> it's just we've missed yep. it. We've missed it around here. Um, so, yeah, you've kind of alluded to it, but tell us just a little bit about the, about the background context for this draft campaign. Yes. So a uh, little bit of context. Uh, I know that we published an article. It's been a while ago since we published this. Man, we, I've been working here for a long time. <laughs> Goodness. Um, but the NRA was, it was originally chartered in New York. It's headquartered in Virginia. But then there was talk about moving it to Texas. They actually tried tried filing uh, bankruptcy in a Texas court. Uh, that filing was tossed out by a judge. Uh, but essentially, they're, they're trying to uh, recharter their organization, get out of New York. Uh, but they're caught up in a legal battle there with the New York Attorney General who has been going on the warpath against them. Um, and so uh, lots of this uh, legal battle uh, between the organization and New York uh, has now led to a point where people are concerned that the, the court is actually going to force Lapeer out of his position. And so the argument from the people who are campaigning uh, for this, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get into all the details because I don't know particularly other sides. I think they're coming from more of a, uh, more of a grassroots conservative trying to pull the NRA more to the right. Um, but they are also concerned that the court is going to force Lapeer out of position. And so they want to get ahead of that and just say, hey, either the court is going to force us to get rid of Lapeer or we can choose someone on our own. Let's just choose someone on our own now. Uh, there was an effort to try and elect someone, uh, I think, 
in the last time that there was an election, uh, but that failed. Uh, so they're trying to get in this time. Uh, there will be a meeting in Houston later at the end of May uh, when the board will meet and decide whether or not they want to elect someone new. Got it. Thank you for following that. Bradley, the designers of the $7.1 billion light rail project here in Austin have revised their cost estimates. Surprise, surprise. What did they say? For the first phase of the project, which is uh, building two light rail lines uh, along with a tunnel station downtown, project costs to increase 77% from their original estimate. Ooh. Yeah. And that is a, in real dollar terms, that is going from $5.8 billion to now $10.3 billion, almost double. Um, that is just the first phase. There are other phases. Of this, add, although yeah. those are the, the biggest undertakings. Um, those, I mean, light rail is obviously, uh, you got to build the entire track and all this stuff. Like it's costly. Uh, and then part of it is building a tunnel yeah. underground. So um, it's going to be in incredibly uh, intensive and probably take, I think the time span is like 10, 15 years. They expect to get all these phases done, but that is just the first one. So um, the other ones may increase down the line as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the reasons for these increased costs? So they gave three. Uh, said in inflation is driving up the cost of materials and labor. Um, that obviously inflation affects everything. It goes into everything that you, every time you pay money, you see inflation infecting it. So um, this obviously pertains to that. The other one is rising property values that um, will increase significantly the amount of money the city has to pay for purchasing property from private owners in order to build this project across its its planned boundaries. And then the third is the tunnel that they planned. First, they wanted to do a bridge across the river. Then for various other reasons, they could realize they couldn't do that. Something One of them was something about uh, utility lines they couldn't avoid. Uh, so they decided uh, a tunnel under the river connecting South Congress and North Congress. Uh, but then they realized that they have to, the tunnel can't just go right under the river and pop back up. They have to extend it like a mile down the, uh, down Congress because um, of the capital corridor regulations, which is what, uh, if you're driving down Congress in downtown Austin, you can see the state capitol from yeah. basically anywhere. You can see it across the across it's the river. It's gorgeous. It's a yeah. great view. And that is statutorily protected by uh, the state government. And so... Oh, by the state government? Yeah, it's in state code. Interesting. Yeah. So they realized that... Uh, I'm sure the city plays into it as well, but... But um, it's not just it, local zoning. It's right. state code. Yeah. Interesting. And so uh, they realized that would be obstructed in some fashion by these other plans. And so now what they have to do is build an even longer tunnel uh, about a mile north of the river uh, on South Congress. That way they, that's not obstructed. That way that they can adhere to those regulations. And so um, that's something the builders should have realized yeah. or the designers should have realized, uh, but they didn't. And so we see the cost increase. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what does this mean for taxpayers? In 2020, voters approved a by a wide margin a 20% city tax rate increase to pay for a portion of the project's costs, about $5.4 billion. Now, the original estimated cost was $7.1 billion. And the city had planned on bringing, still does plan on bringing in federal funding to pay for the rest. 
but that was just a guess. Like there was none lined up mm-hmm. and there still isn't any lined up. Um, so now they'll either have to increase the amount of federal funding they bring in to compensate for the cost increase, or they'll have to down the road, ask taxpayers for more. I suppose the third option is for the entire project to be scrapped, but hmm. I highly doubt that will happen. Local uh, projects are very rarely scrapped. Yes. yes. Even it. if it takes three decades for them to complete it. <laughs> and each new administration yeah. uh, and inherits just, it. Just because they apply for this funding does not mean they'll get it. Like uh, back in Cincinnati, they had this streetcar plan and it was supposed to connect the UC campus to downtown to, um, I think, the Xavier campus. Uh, what they have now is... Uh, basically just uh, a downtown streetcar that nobody rides because all the federal funding fell through. Hmm. So there's no guarantee that they get this. It doesn't mean they won't, but this is not a sure thing. Absolutely. Well, and think about how difficult it is to get your um, your kitchen and your home remodeled and all the different, you know, snags that you may run into in, in installations. Think about how much more that's amplified when you have a project of this magnitude and unforeseen costs that come up and different contractors yeah. that may bid you, uh, you know, something much higher than another. It's very complicated. And not to mention that government doesn't always uh, use its funds in the most, yeah. uh, you know, prudent way. And yeah, also... Well, when when this was planned, this has been in development for a while. When this was planned, it was 2020. So the pandemic was already happening. And that's a wild. We all could have foreseen some sort of cost problems because of the the pandemic throwing a wrench into the supply chain and whatnot, which is absolutely driving up costs. But also the government, the federal government is spending money like crazy, printing money. They already have. So the the idea that. This wasn't approved in 2019 when the economy was in great shape. Yeah. This, they had to have known that they were going to run into problems like this, but here we are. Here we are. Thank you, Bradley. Hayden, we're going to come to you. You wrote about a couple of Dallas police indictments this week. Who are the police officers in question and what are they accused of? I always like to put things in their political contexts. So I will mention that criminal district attorney John Crusoe is in a general election campaign against former state district judge Faith Johnson, a Republican who was also the criminal district attorney in Dallas County. Crusoe being a Democrat, correct? correct. Crusoe is a Democrat and he defeated Faith Johnson in the last general election for DA in 2018. But the current indictments that were handed down recently were against two uh, one former police officer and a current police officer in the Dallas Police Department both of them were or are senior corporals and have been charged with multiple felonies that could put them away for a life Melvin Williams was fired by the department earlier this year on an unrelated incident he was accused of assaulting someone last summer and was fired as a result of that accusation. But both Melvin Williams and the other defendant in this case, um, the current senior corporal Ryan Mabry, who's 36 years old, are charged with multiple counts of aggravated assault by a public servant and counts of deadly conduct as well. The accusations stem from injuries that were sustained by demonstrators in the summer of 2020 during the race riots that took place downtown. 
There are also accusations based on injuries that were said to have been sustained by unknown individuals. In other words, the people who are said to be victims have not come forward or have not otherwise been identified. They are looking at, Mabry is looking at six counts of aggravated assault by a public servant and two counts of deadly conduct. Williams is looking at, I believe, four counts of aggravated assault by a public servant and two counts of deadly conduct. They also both face misdemeanor counts of official oppression. Now, in addition, sorry, one more. No, go for it. Uh, The grand jury, just a reminder, grand juries do not convict people. They issue a no bill or true bill on indictments. They also issued an indictment for officer Joe Privet in the Garland police department of one count of aggravated assault by a public servant. But that is the complete list of indictments that were announced by Cruzo's office. Wow. Now how did Dallas police uh, chief Eddie Garcia respond to all of this? Of course, two of the people here are either currently or were associated with DPD chief Eddie Garcia really took the posture that most police chiefs, police chiefs are going to take in a situation like this. And he encouraged the public to wait on the jury's verdicts in the, these cases and reminded the public that there were hundreds of officers who acted professionally and were not indicted. But he also encouraged people in these cases to await the jury's verdict and not to rush to judgment. He stated, quote, I'm not quite sure if there was criminal intent, end quote. He also stated that DPD is not necessarily going to make any major policy changes as a result of these indictments. In fact, he stated in a way the opposite, he said, quote, the goals are to defend our protesters, to def- to protect our officers, and to ensure the city doesn't burn. Those are the goals that will always be the goals. The tactics, what a professional police department will do is look at the tactics used and maybe modify some tactics, which this department already has done. But those goals will never change, and this city needs to know that this police department's goals will never change, end quote. Garcia defended his officers as most police chiefs would do in this situation. And he also disagreed with the grand jury's characterization of the 40 millimeter launchers as deadly weapons because they were used to propel less than lethal rounds of ammunition at these protesters. I do want to mention the complaining witnesses in the counts against both Mabry and Williams are David McKee and Brandon signs. They do not include the two unknown individuals. These are the names on the indictments. And anytime I talk about criminal charges, I try not to give a summary of what happened because that's for the jury to sort out. And it's of course in dispute what happened on May 30th, 2020. So when these cases go to trial, it will be for a jury to decide whether whatever happened rises to a level of criminal conduct. And these 
charges were filed previously, but Crusoe's office did not file this many counts against them. The grand jury indicted them with more charges than they were originally arrested for and booked in the Dallas County Jail. At this stage, it will be up to Crusoe's office to prosecute them and for a jury to make a decision. Well, Hayden, thank you for uh, boiling that down for us. Brad, I really, before we get into some um, other segments of the pod, I really quickly want you to talk about this citywide vote with Austin um, approving an ordinance specifically dealing with marijuana. Tell us about what happened and what police had to say. Yeah, so voters approved overwhelmingly uh, an ordinance that does two things. First of all, it's approved. Inhibits the Austin Police Department from enforcing misdemeanor marijuana possession offenses. So that means uh, people possessing some uh, marijuana below a level of marijuana below four ounces uh, will no longer be cited or arrested per a new directive from the council. Um, the other provision is uh, prohibits police from issuing or carrying out no-knock warrants. This is where they approach a suspect's house and they don't announce themselves before they enter. Um, those aren't used very often, and usually it's used that way they don't uh, alert a potentially dangerous subject or suspect. Um, but now that is no longer going to be... Uh, those prohibitions are in the city charter now. Very cool. Um, well, thank you for covering that for us. And police basically said, like, this won't change that much of what they're already doing. Yeah, they said they already don't really arrest for that level of possession uh, because there are resources already stretched thin enough. Well, remember that list that they put out like a few months ago of like all these offenses and saying, well, we won't really do much about these things. And like theft, I think, was on the list, too. The low DA, level thefts. Yes. The DA, yes. 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 Um, There's something then, like that in Dallas, too, right? Remember? I don't know. That's unimportant. Yeah. They, they, there was a policy like that. They, he, they're not prosecuting lower level marijuana offenses. I can't remember if it's two ounces or four ounces, but there, but that wasn't a countywide vote so much as it was a policy that the new DA's administration put in place. Well, that's the reason it won't change much because if the DA is not going to charge, then the why arrest? Gonna arrest. Yeah. yeah. So kind of the same thing that happened with the homeless stuff. Um, only that was also a city policy yeah. passed by the council um and then as for no knock warrants they said they've only done like an average of three the last few years wow so yeah. average of three each year the last few years and it's usually it's only used for like murder suspects wow um, so, yeah yeah there you go they say it won't change much well, thank you, Bradley, for covering that, gentlemen. We're going to pivot to some tweetery. Um, talk some through tweetery. some tweetery. I thought that was a, that was better than just saying other words. Um, and talk through what we're seeing on Twitter this week. Daniel, I'm going to start with you. Um, what did you happen to see that caught your eye on Twitter this week? There was an article that was published by the Associated Press. And it was about Elon Musk, which seems... Like a theme that I've been talking about a lot lately on this, this segment. You do like to talk about Elon. I mean, it's Twitter, right? So <laughs> I was going to go with another tweet, but then apparently everybody wanted to talk about that one. So <laughs> ripped from you. I went back to Elon. <laughs> uh, but this is less about Elon Musk and more about the Associated Press tweet. Uh, they had an article. The article was titled, Elon Musk, an erratic visionary revels in contradiction. And it was really the social copy that just got me here because it's so confusing <laughs> it makes no sense i'm just gonna read it word for word 
It says, Elon Musk boasts that he's acquiring Twitter to defend freedom of speech, but he has long used the platform to attack those who disagree with him. I, I don't know who wrote that, but I don't think that they have an have operational a, understanding of free, free speech. speech. <laughs> yeah. Or just like a basic understanding of the first amendment of the historical context of it. Like the reason for the first amendment was for using a, a platform to disagree with people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was very confusing about what they were trying to get at there. That's not really a contradiction if they're trying to point one out. Now the article itself I also didn't really understand where the contradiction was. Now, is he an erratic visionary? That is a fair description, I think. But (laughs) Probably, yeah. Yeah. But regardless. Such a weird tweet. Well, and Musk has come out and said, I will allow people who disagree. Like, I'm not going to boot people off of my platform because they disagree with me. Now, if at some point he pivots from that position and we start to see, you know, him engaged in the same kind of quote unquote censorship that he's accused Twitter of in the past, then that's a Mm -hmm. conversation. But criticism is not the stifling of free speech. And he has some interesting nuanced comments about what he would do. Like he said, he would allow Trump back on the platform. Trump has said that he's not going to come back to Twitter. Oh, I didn't um, know that. That's interesting. Yeah. And then the other interesting thing is that Elon Musk said that he doesn't agree that there should be a permanent ban, but he said, you know, maybe there's a, a situation for a quote timeout of, you know, temporary, temporarily susp- suspending people. Or he said that in some instances there are cases for permanent bans if you're just like a spammer or something like that. Um, so it's a little bit more nuanced, but we talked a lot about bots and those kinds of things of, you know, trying to make Twitter a little little less spammy. So, which him talking about bots is interesting too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's very interesting. Well, thank you, Daniel. Um, Isaiah, what do you have that caught your eye this week? I remember because I forgot. No, it, um, (laughs) it deals with something a little bit more related to, to what we read about. Uh, Ted Cruz put out a statement, not really exclusive to Twitter, but that's where I saw it, where uh, he praised uh, Governor Greg Abbott's newfound embrace of vouchers on Monday. He said, I have long urged Texas to stand with children and against the special interests that are trying to deny Texans the freedom to decide if education dollars are spent, such and such. I'm glad my friend Governor Abbott is so fervently supporting school choice. And Brad can probably speak to this a little bit more specifically than I can, but um is it unreasonable, I wonder, for, I mean, this isn't a question I expect anybody here to answer, you know, right? Um, but I wonder, like, is it unreasonable to think that there is political pressure behind this statement of Ted's, you know? Um, Do you support the governor to show support for the governor? Not that Ted himself is acting on pressure, but that he is exerting pressure with this statement. Because um, Abbott's wording... <laughs> Cruz's wording is stronger than Abbott's wording. And so by, I think Cruz is framing it a little bit more uh, solidly than Abbott did. You know, Governor Abbott is fervently supporting school choice. Yeah. That's not the, the kind of, the kind of word choice that Abbott used. Right. I mean, certainly not up until this week. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's like Cruz is kind of solidifying that position. It's like, okay, we're sticking here now. Oh yeah, Abbott yeah. is fervently supporting school choice, you know, and it's almost like something for Planting the record. The flag, yes. And were. again, this I wonder is is it just like 
in the clouds prognostication to say that's what's going on here or is this just like good job Greg Abbott yeah but something interesting too um, that's a little bit more concrete is that school choice has been maybe the biggest wedge issue between these two politicians with regards to who they endorse in mm-hmm. Texas house races. Absolutely. Especially this cycle. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Cruz has made it his most important issue. Yeah. Uh, state on the state level, at least. And as you were, uh, mentioned, like the, their, the endorsements crew, this is the only, maybe not the only issue, but if there's a difference between two candidates on school choice Cruz is going to endorse the one that supports in these races and he's made that very clear yeah yeah and while Abbott's endorsements meanwhile are more of a mixed bag there are some like he endorsed Rosen Glenn Rogers who I mentioned earlier who was vehemently against uh school choice legislation he came out uh with a whole um uh editorial, essay, on, editorial right? yeah. Yeah, on it uh criticizing it then others have been silent on the issue i've actually i've um i heard back from a couple people uh of his endorsements today uh and they said that they uh, one of them patrick gursky in hg23 said he supports the governor's statement that he made this week um others have been more silent on it then there were some that were endorsed by the american federation of teachers while they themselves were silent on the issue this group is not in support of that. And they also rejected the endorsement after they got it. So it's just, it's not as clear cut as what Cruz is, is doing and saying out there. Um, it's like I said, more of a mixed bag, but you're right. This is a big wedge issue for these guys. Yeah. And you're totally right. It's interesting watching um, Cruz almost solidify. Okay. Yes. Abbott, you did say this. Like yeah. it, it, it's just more statements on the record that kind of put Abbott in this corner of like, okay, you've come out in this much support so far. What will the legislature actually do? What will you put your weight behind, behind the scenes when, you know, push comes to shove? It seems to be a nudge off the fence. Yeah. Or maybe not. (laughs) Who knows? Well, and that's the thing. Statewide elected officials don't legislate, but they can push things behind the scenes. The legislature at large, behind the scenes, and sometimes even publicly, know exactly what their leaders want. And so that's where it'll come down to, okay, what do they actually put put pen to paper in terms of actual proposals? And next year, the governor will lay out his, uh, was it emergency items? Yeah. And... I think at this point we'll likely see school choice legislation. School choice is not on that in some, and that's where he'll shape the conversation and his words are chosen so carefully. Mm -hmm. So pay attention folks of what, how ardent his support actually is when, when the legislature can. And that's when we'll see what legislation will actually take the shape of exactly whether it is full on voucher program or if it's kind of a hybrid system, something like that. We'll see. Um, But And there is usually a legislature that's like, you know, uh, knighted by the governor is, okay, you'll carry the proposal that I support. Mm -hmm. He'll call legislators behind the scenes, say, support this one. Other legislators will file other options that could potentially be more bold, less bold, whatever that might be. And it's interesting to watch what shape it takes and with amendments, once it gets to the floor and the committee process, what the discussion becomes publicly and if that can kind of deviate from, you know, the governor's plan. Um, So it'll be interesting. Brad, um, talk to us about what you saw this week. So mine is, it's not exactly related to Elon Musk, but he's a (laughs) big inventor. So it's sort of related to that. But I saw this video of this uh, space saving furniture folding concept. Oh my gosh. And it basically looks like what you see in a dorm room with 
uh, your wardrobe and whatnot, how they have doors that kind of fold into each other or into the furniture. Yeah. Um, but it just reminded me, we see these constantly, uh, these technological developments that are supposed to be groundbreaking, but really they're just in reinventing something that's already been in existence. And yeah, they might yeah. have a cool twist on something, but this is not, I'm watching this video right now and the guy's just opening a f folding door on some like makeshift office space and it f like slides into itself to save space. Brad, it's a closet. Yes, it's a closet. Yes, thank it you. Is a closet. That's exactly what <laughs> we've got one right here. Yeah, <laughs> look at it. And I, I just these all these people act like they're reinventing the wheel, and this is some groundbreaking technological advancement that's going to save the human race, and it's just not. I don't understand why you would choose to talk about this on a podcast when 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 listeners can't see what you're talking about. I don't mean to rake you over the coals, but I'm yes, going to rake you, you over the coals. Yes, you do. <laughs> well, it happened already. You didn't stop me. So. <laughs> I, I didn't really know where you were going with this. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you know, it look it, it does look like a like a fancy Ikea installation. I'll yeah. give you that. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be this. There's so many other examples of this kind of thing. That's true. It's just you reinvented the door. Okay. Good job. That's good. I understand. I'm not going to rake your coals any more than I already have. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Bradley. That, that doesn't mean for the rest of the day. That just means that just for means the rest for of this the particular podcast. Yes. We're talking about mm -hmm. for the next couple of minutes, not even few. Two minutes is your time limit until the next raking over the coals <laughs> might happen. I'll enjoy the two minutes while it lasts. I really haven't done this in a while, though. It's been a hot minute. Yeah. Okay. However you define a hot minute, that, sure. That's true. That's true. Hayden, what do you got for us? Speaking of free speech. The Heritage Foundation highlighted an interesting quote from Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky regarding the Disinformation Governance Board. Paul said, quote, do you think the American people are so stupid they need the government to tell them what the truth is? End quote. I presume he directed that remark towards Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, but it goes to an interesting, I won't say interesting, I will say a wrong uh, definition of freedom of speech that is emerging, and that is the ability for the left to um, say what it wants without being criticized, and the need for the right to be um, perpetually, quote, fact-checked by whatever institution or elite uh, happens to be in charge. And, of course, the Disinformation Governance Board has been criticized for being linked to Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, and... I don't think it's any secret that there's definitely a slant to a lot of the the fact checking and uh, people in heated debates make false claims on both sides. Um, and the objection to the disinformation governance board has been that it will turn into an entity that surveils and monitors Americans and uh, whether that institution is used by a Republican or a Democratic president to censor the beliefs of Americans, it would be chilling to the free speech rights of people on both the left and the right. I thought that was an interesting perspective from mm. Senator Paul. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This whole free speech argument is going to be uh, something that goes on for, I mean, it's talked about all the time, but particularly with the acquisition of Twitter will be in it, you know, continue to be talked about. Um, very good. Thank you, Hayden. 
Um, well, I'm going to chat real fast about something that I think three of us at this table um, wanted to talk about. So please chime in, boys. Um, but this all started, we're talking about vouchers, school choice so much lately, just in Texas politics. And Gene Wu, a Democrat state representative from Houston, took to Twitter this week. Um, and I believe this is the tweet that started it all. Correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, but tweet from Gene Wu. Hey, Republicans, push for vouchers. Push as hard as you can. Make it a litmus test for Republican candidates running for office. Trust me, they're, they're, I think, I don't know, there are no easily foreseeable consequences that will bite you in the ass for taking the stance. I promise. Very ardent words from Gene Wu. Quite ardent. Yeah. Very ardent words. <laughs> <laughs> He's really uh, staking his flag, as he, it were. Yeah. <laughs> well, as it were, twice this time, yeah. Um, Brian Harrison, a newly elected Republican um, state representative, quote tweeted, Gene, I won my let my I won my seat campaigning for school choice in a rural district by 11 points. Texas GOP voters support it nine to one. You went to private school. Please explain why you want to keep poor kids in failing schools from the opportunity you had. What do you tell their parents? And really, there are like, this is this whole conversation is like just a spider web of different replies from, you know, different pundits or um, elected officials in Texas. But it's fascinating watching this back and forth um, and kind of seeing where people are are landing on this. And Gene Wu really has dug in um, on this argument. And later on, he said, I went to a private school for high school. My family would have loved to have money back, but they didn't need it. I would love to get $12,000 of state money for my kids in private school but that doesn't seem fair in the least bit very interesting Mm. and you know we talked about this before of like the rural versus urban conversation and you know Wu certainly is in a more urban area of texas um and interesting to watch a rural republican and an urban democrat kind of go at this from these two different angles um i mean in gop chair matt rinaldi jumped in on this too and i did not see the tweet from Wu before it was deleted rinaldi claims that uh he criticized rinaldi then for going to public school and then deleted it like there's just it's a messy conversation and dialogue that's happening on Twitter. Um, and I, I think this is just foreshadowing what we'll see in the legislature in 2023. Yeah, and a couple interesting things. Uh, I remember there was one significant vote on a bill that would uh, that had to do with homeschoolers playing at UIL sports. And um, <clears throat> Wu ended up voting for that bill against a lot of his other colleagues who would also oppose school choice. And like you pointed out, there are Democrats who like school choice. There are Democrats who don't. Same with Republicans. And that, you know, it cuts through party lines. It's often correlated with, like, what kind of places they represent. Yeah. Um, but, like, Wu's shown a willingness to kind of break ranks with others in that camp in his own party on education topics, like, here and there, but not on this one. Second thing is also that uh, he seems to, he, I mean, you, you read one tweet, but there's, a, like, it's been going on. It's like dozens his, of tweets. Yeah, yeah, a lot. And he is several times tied it to, he has threatened or warned of political pressure force it like supporting vouchers and saying like all your your school board members are going to campaign against you and things like that and so like he's arguing that it is a losing issue for voters in the upcoming election cycle yeah it'll be interesting to see if that's the case to see if that's the case yeah yeah well republican primary voters overwhelmingly support it but in 
general elections is far more nuanced. So very interesting. Um, I see the tweet here. Daniel just found it uh, from Gene Wu that was um, screenshot by Matt Rinaldi. I'm sorry you could figure out or you could. I, I assume it means he means couldn't. I'm sorry you couldn't figure out how to read the rest of the thread. Do you want to blame that on your public school education too? Spicy words. Mm. Spicy, spicy. Okay, Twitter general. always has just the most nuanced uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, disagreements. Intellectual. Yes. It's um, really, uh, really always sophisticated conversations. Points, yeah. Yeah. Uh, civil dialogue always happens on Twitter. Really is the uh, uh, the bedrock of all um, of intellectual discussion. Really. Yes, of democracy. A lot of, a lot of ardent words on Twitter. <laughs> okay, I've said ardent like three times on this podcast. Apparently that's my new word. I've just chosen to use every other um in every other instance well also insulting your opponent's literacy in a tweet that ignores apostrophes <laughs> is bold. and says could instead of couldn't when i assume you mean to say couldn't yeah. so it is bold but I mean, maybe that's why he deleted i want to see a generous interpretation of it but i i can't <laughs> <laughs> i think the, the apostrophe in t is is gone yeah <laughs> Um, okay, gentlemen, well, real fast before we wrap up here, I do want to say we are adding two new team members to our squad here at the Texan. Matt Stringer out in West Texas is going to be covering what's happening out there for us in large part, as well as just other beats that um, he's able to. So welcome to the team, Matt. And next week, we have an assistant editor um, starting as well, Rob Lausius. I do want to give you guys um, real fast just an opportunity to talk about how you plan to haze these new additions. Now, Matt particularly will not be subject to as much scrutiny or hazing because he is no in West Texas. Hazing. Yes, it may be different. Um, some psychological warfare may be <laughs> waged, but it is not the same as poor Rob will have to deal with when he is actually here. Um, what kind of plan? And I do want to, you know, we can talk about it here and then we'll see if he listens to this podcast and we'll know based on how prepared he is come Tuesday morning. So mm. what, are, what are we planning? I know you boys have already talked about. Well, we're going to take him out to lunch and leave him with the check. Oh, yes. So that's going to be a classic. thing. Classic. <laughs> Daniel's smile right now. He has no mic, but he looks so pleased. Yes, absolutely. A classic. What else? What else are we planning? Don't be shy. I, well, I've been a part of these conversations. I plan to find whatever his grammatical white whale is mm. and either misspell it or make that error in every single one of my drafts as it were edits as it were. Yeah. yeah. As it so, were. um, that's, that's my plan. I'm, I'm going to call him Bob for the first three weeks that he works here. <laughs> oh, that really got me. <laughs> and make him correct me over and over and, until finally I like, stop. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's like, sorry, Ray. Uh, you know, just, it'll take me a little bit. <laughs> and then just start calling him Robert after that. Robert. Just really seriously. Robert. That's or you awesome. could just kind of say it a little bit wrong, like Robert. Robert. <laughs> Roberto? Yeah. Call him that. Start calling him Beto. I think I would uh <laughs> you you like prop you you prop the door open a little bit and prop a bucket of water on top of it. <laughs> and then when he walks in, you steal his wallet. <laughs> and run away. <laughs> Oh man, I know some conversations have happened after about the water has fallen on him, or is that just I haven't totally worked out separate? What, I haven't worked out what the water will do. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> what is the uh, order in, or the the dress code situation that y'all have talked about? Oh, we're going to discuss this publicly. No, no, we're not. We're not giving this one away. Yeah, we can't give that one away because if he if he listens, then that's literally what I've been trying to get you guys to talk about this entire time. Oh, really? That no. was that in particular. Well, because I knew about that one. 
Okay. Well, this bucket on the top of the door thing is not going to happen. I was scrambling for an alternative to the dress code thing because I thought, oh, we can't spoil it before he gets here. Oh. But, I don't think he'll. Okay. Well, all right. Um, <laughs> we were tossing around ideas of like finding a way to scare him into thinking that we wear suits here every day. <laughs> and if you're listening, we're wearing suits right now, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if he comes here without a suit, uh, we would suggest to him something like, Oh, by the way, um, you've got like 20 minutes before Gunny gets here to, to change into your suit. Uh, if you want to sit, like the bathroom's back there, whenever you want to change, you know, so we usually start at, at like 830, by the way, that's when our workday starts, but you know, it's your first day. So <laughs> things like that that we can say to him. And, you know. That's pretty good. I enjoy that. Isaiah has this very, uh, very thought out. There are many, uh, in this conversation, no, we I was put surprised. it on the calendar. It is on the calendar. <laughs> Wear a suit on the first day that Rob starts is it here. Really? Oh Wait, gosh. maybe it's on my calendar. <laughs> I don't see it. He okay. reminded himself. I, I put personally. it on my calendar and I set an alert so that I would remember that's to well, Hayden, dress that's to the nines on his first day. You did do that day. when you first started here? working here. Hayden was very dressed to the nines when he first started working here. May seventeenth. Seventeenth. Yeah. That's yeah. in. Next Tuesday. That's five days from now. Oh yeah. Okay. I believe that's if they haven't changed the math yet, I believe that's what 17 minus 12 is. And today's the 12th. So <laughs> that's very good. I was thinking though, we, since we do want to take him out to lunch, maybe not leave him with a check, maybe leave him with a check. I don't know. We'll decide. We'll see. Um, like if we're in a suit, mm. then we probably couldn't go to Ironworks barbecue, which would, I mean, we could, I just had to be more careful. Eating. Swear a bib. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I don't want to get my suit dirty. I think we should let Rob decide where to eat. That's fair. Yeah. Although we'll have to come up with but, options because there is always indecision about where do we go for well, lunch. Well, also, he doesn't know the places in Austin. That's so. also very true. We could say barbecue, Mexican, tacos, mm-hmm. yeah. something, you know, go from there. Still, though, there's right. lots of messy options. Yeah. And Ironworks is a classic for you you boys all over. And I've never been. I've never been to Ironworks. Yeah. Because I don't think I've been there either. Have we gone? Yes. Oh, there is it. Yes. Makes you feel better, Hayden. Cause I, there was once when y'all went and I, yes. I don't remember why and I couldn't, oh, I couldn't go. There yeah, were multiple been. times when y'all went and I couldn't go. Yeah. I, th- I think I, I think, yeah, I've been there mm-hmm. because I think we all went as a group, but Mac wasn't there. Yeah. Anyways. Wonderful. Um, well, gentlemen, thank you so much. You guys are awesome folks. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you all so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our podcast, it would be awesome if you would review us on iTunes. And if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show, give us a shout on Twitter. Tweet at the Texan News. We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you, so it's important we all do our part to support the Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you, and God bless Texas.